The problem is not that women are choosing lesser paying jobs. Um, there's actually research that does show that wages tend to go down when more women enter a profession because there's a general tendency to devalue jobs that are mostly done by women. From the heart of Hub City, downtown Moncton, New Brunswick, this is Well and Fair. I'm your host, Anna Larad, and I want to see change in my lifetime. So let's talk. Today on the podcast, we're talking to Krista Cowling from the New Brunswick Coalition for Pay Equity. The New Brunswick Coalition for Pay Equity is one of the only bilingual advocacy organizations working on gender equality in the province. It is made up of over a thousand individuals and a hundred member organizations that pursue and ensure the realization of the right to pay equity and fair working conditions for women. Krista, thank you so much for coming on today. Thank you for having me. Um, So I guess a good place to start is like, what is pay equity exactly? Is it the same as equal pay or is it there kind of a nuance to the definition? Absolutely. And that's a place I really like to start because often when we start talking about pay equity, the first thing that comes to people's mind is pay equality. And so it's really easy to get those definitions confused. So pay. I'll admit that's sort of how I thought about it also. It just immediately, that's the first first thing that came to my mind also was, uh, was about that issue of equal pay. And it sounds like there's more to it than that. Yeah. So pay equality is when we look at the same job, We want people in that job to be paid the same. So if I was getting a starting wage at, you know, a restaurant or something like that, I would expect that any two people that are starting with the same amount of experience would be paid the same. So regardless of gender, race, ability um, or disability, Um, when we look at pay equity, what we're using is a gender based lens to compare different jobs Um, so we're looking at equal pay for jobs of equal value. So when we get into that, we're looking at like, if we have a job that is traditionally done by women or a job that's predominantly done by women, and we would compare that to jobs traditionally done by men or predominantly done by men. So if I'm looking at like, Uh, if I'm looking at like a larger business, for example, that maybe has cashiers and people working in the warehouse, I would do a comparison of those jobs where jobs in the warehouse are typically done by men and cashier jobs are typically done by women. Um, So we can get into like the different kinds of things that we would compare um, in those jobs. So uh, for example, pay equity, We're looking at, um, yeah, we're looking at comparing the value of female dominated jobs to the value of male dominated jobs. So some of the factors we would look at comparing are things like skills and qualifications, responsibility, effort, and working conditions. So we would assign each of those things a value. And if we find at the end that those values are the same, then we would expect the pay to be the same. So if we find that those values are the same, but the pay is very different, then we would say work needs to be done to achieve pay equity for that um, for that role. Uh, so is that what, when we talk about measuring equivalent work, is that what that is, is looking at equivalent pay for equivalent work? Absolutely, yes. Using those different factors is that way that we can really compare um, a pay, compare equivalent work. 
Are all those factors weighed the same or do different factors have different weight in the comparison? That's an excellent question. So I think for that, that's really like getting into the nitty gritty of it. So from my understanding, there's uh, some different ways that we can, uh, there's like some different uh, researched ways that people will make up these um, uh, comparisons for um uh, for these different factors where certain types of um, certain types of skills or qualifications might be given a bigger weight than others. Um, that might be a little beyond. That's that's fair. I'm sure it's I'm sure it's one of those things that in the course of a because like, this has been researched for decades now that people who are specialized in this area have refined for for decades now. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. So you might have someone that says like, oh, we really like using like this method of doing it. But that method might, um, you know, it might give more points to, I don't know, things like a financial type of roles and positions where another method that you use might, you know, favor a, a different type of skill or thing a little bit more. I'm sure across many different um, kinds of measurements, you still consistently see a pay gap, right? That's what I'm assuming. Yeah, exactly. So as we compare these things, um, we are we are seeing, um, yeah, it, it kind of highlights uh, a pay gap that exists. So when you hear these statistics like... Uh, like women are paid seven cents, seventy cents on the on the dollar a man is paid. Is that is that a representative of this pay gap across um, across equivalent work, or is that more a measure of a man and a woman being in exactly the same job and not being paid the same amount? Because I think, I, like, I, even for me, I get confused about that when we're giving these stats. Is what is the stat actually for? Often when we look at that stat, we're comparing like um, we'll be comparing what. Uh, the average, uh, the average earned income of men versus the average earned income of women, um, or the median earned income of men versus the median earned income of women, kind of highlights that women are typically in more, uh, women are typically in roles that are underpaid, um, but it's mm -hmm. not necessarily. Um, it's it's more a general statistic, I guess, across the board. Gotcha. And that becomes important because like on over the course of our season here, we've been talking a lot about housing. And of course, when we're talking about what is affordable housing, you know, that's defined as a percentage of income. But, you know, we're not necessarily differentiating um, income by different groups. And if there's a systematic pay gap, housing might be affordable for men, but not affordable for women, right? So when we look at uh, affordable housing, yes, it, it is determined by income and women typically make less than men. What we also see is that that pay gap is even larger um, when we look at different uh, social demographic gaps. So if we look at like indigenous women, for example, have a much larger pay gap to what men experience than what myself as a white woman would experience. How much larger is it? Uh, the last stat I have is from 2016 uh, that shows that Indigenous women had a 45% gap in pay compared to men, where women in general um, had a 31% gap. So that would be like 55 cents on the dollar. Yes, which is huge. That's a huge gap. Yeah. 
And that's 2016, right? I'm assuming the pandemic we lived through over the last few years didn't make that better. (laughs) Yeah, so we saw that we did get some improvements around uh, 2019 and 2020, actually. But one of the the reasons that we saw an improvement in 2020 is actually that more women left the workforce. How would that improve the, the pay gap? Uh, Because we had more women that left the workforce, it was just more women in lower paying jobs left the workforce. So we Right, because the women being measured are the women who are in the workforce earning a salary. We're not even talking about women who do unpaid labor. Exactly. Yeah. They're not even counted. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. So what we saw over the pandemic is that, um, so- uh, exactly as you said, women uh, uh, women take up a, a more dominant share of unpaid work in in relationships, so related to like caretaking and things like that. So with the pandemic, there was a greater burden on, um, especially in families or where I uh, you know there were lockdowns, children were out of school. So that became a challenge for parents to navigate. And then also just family members getting sick and things like that. So a lot of that fell onto women. So a lot of women ended up leaving the workforce to uh, help with um, help with education, help with taking care of family members who were sick, or um, we even saw Uh, We even saw, for example, families that maybe had a parent that was in a care home, but that there was a lot of challenges around care homes and managing the spread of COVID. Uh, So some family members might have had their parent move back into their into their household to try and uh, help reduce uh, help reduce the spread of of COVID-19 and take care of that. So a lot more unpaid labor got uh, got pushed on to, to women. It would be just so interesting to compare sort of these different measures, right? Because you have just women in the workforce versus maybe the value of women's labor. And like, I think that's kind of what gets tricky for me, someone who's reading about these conversations online, who wants to see equality for women and equal pay and to see um, and who believes in women's rights. But when you don't have an expertise, sometimes you don't necessarily know what's being measured what we're what that percentage represents and when you're trying to have conversations with people who maybe don't agree with you on this issue or who think differently not having that information can really impact how effective you feel you can be in conversations like that right yeah I remember uh I remember for myself maybe like a decade or so ago um I had a job that was I did a lot of tabling events for another nonprofit organization. And uh, at the time, one of the things we were asking for was to sign a petition um, for it was around an election. So it was asking people to sign a petition to get the leaders of the different political parties to agree to a debate that was focused just on issues, um, just on issues impacting women and girls. And I found just the process of doing that in my like earlier 20s really interesting because I'd have a lot of uh, I have a lot of men in particular that would start arguments with me that like um, we don't need this. Like I don't want my daughters to have like free stuff like equality already exists. Like women are just paid less because they don't 
Uh, they just don't want more. Um, so I I've can- heard that too. That, like I've heard the the gap is attributed to um, women choosing to be in professions that just pay less. And as much as like that kind of hits me intuitive as being like, well, that doesn't sound right. I'll admit that I don't have enough information about the subject to come up with like a reasoned response to that. Like, how would you respond to someone who would say, well, women are just choosing to be in lower paid jobs? What I'd say is that women dominated industries are undervalued and underpaid because the workforce is mostly composed of women. So if they mm. were paid the same as jobs of the same value, mostly done by men, it, w- it would correct that pay disparity. We've already kind of talked about unpaid labor. So there's kind of this expectation that these roles that women typically take on will just like women should just be doing it for free, um, which is very difficult to do under this capitalist system that we live under. So as Mm -hmm. those jobs have become paid work, there's still this idea that like, oh, but uh, they shouldn't be paid as well. But then if we see that now men are entering that particular field and now more men are doing it, we'll see that uh, a wage increase happens in that area. What kind of fields has this happened in before? One that comes to mind is women would have been doing a lot more around computing, for example. So if we think back to like war times, a lot of men were off fighting in the war. A lot of women were actually in more of these like um, in more of these like background roles where they would have been more involved in like computer sciences and things like that. Coding used to be a women dominated profession. Exactly. And now we see that a lot of men have entered into that field. Coding jobs are are very well paying jobs, um, but it's no longer a field that's predominantly uh, dominated by women. So that that would be a big one that comes to mind. Um, I'm sure there there's others as well. But um, yeah, that that one's very strong on the top of my head right now. Does the opposite hold true where if you see like male flight from a particular profession, like I'm thinking a lot of more educated professions, like like more there's a higher percentage of, of doctors, of lawyers and other professionals because women more are more tending to get university degrees now. Is there an inverse where as we see male flight from certain professions, there is a pay decrease? Um. I'm not sure because even if we look at those professions as we see more women entering them, they'd still be roles that are considered male dominated or like traditionally done by men. So, um, yeah, I'd, I'd have to look at that a little more closely. It's true that it's a really complex issue. I mean, like even with the coding example, that's something that would have changed over the course of decades. Um, you like World War Two was a while ago now. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Actually, I I'm uh, I have a couple notes here in front of me, and I'm I'm actually seeing that. Um, yes, the, the the problem is not that women are choosing lesser paying jobs. Um, there's actually research that does show that wages tend to go down when more women enter a profession, because there's a general tendency to devalue jobs that are mostly done by women. So yes, we could say the inverse is true. <laughs> That's wild, right? Oh yeah, that is wild. So it really shows that what what we're talking about is um, it is a gender equality issue. Right. Because if it was just about the profession on its merits, if the demographics of that profession changed, the pay should not. And yet the pay does change. Right. Exactly. 
So another kind of explanation you see kicking around online as people have, uh, as, as we all know, extremely respectful <laughs> online having only respectful debates about gender issues. Uh, <laughs> uh, sorry. Um, but um, sorry, joking aside, um, you know, when, when this kind of conversation comes up online, you see that like some of the pay gap becomes attributed to women's behavior in the workplace, that women are passive, that women don't assert um, themselves. They don't ask for promotions. They don't ask for pay rises. And I think that was like the whole premise of like lean in, mm. you know, the, the, the book that led to like the girl boss um, phenomenon. Um, does that hold true? I think that's, I think that's a way of kind of taking a bigger issue and really pushing it on to individuals. So kind of like this idea that like we'll solve climate change if we all just start using reusable bags and like stop buying plastic water bottles. Um, if only, right? Yeah. Like there's much larger issues that are going on around climate change that have to do with like these big businesses. And I, I think it's the same can be true when we look at at these pay gaps is instead of blaming it on individual women and, you know, they just need to try harder and negotiate better. Um, really, um, we're looking at at what is a, a systemic problem and that's not going to be changed by uh, individuals trying to renegotiate their their wages more aggressively. So one solution we could look at for that would be uh, to enact pay transparency, which is the practice of making pay information more public um, in order to try and close wage gaps. So that's something that the coalition has uh, started doing some research on to see what kind of legislation around pay transparency could maybe be enacted in New Brunswick. So pay transparency itself is like a very large topic and can include a lot of different things. But one thing would be requiring job postings to include wage information, allowing employees to discuss their wages with other employees. Right now, we don't have any legislation in New Brunswick that protects employees from retaliation if they start talking together and realizing that they're all paid differently. Also providing workers with uh, workplace like job classification and compensation information. So really pay transparency, I guess that umbrellas is anything that that helps us share what these wages are, because as we start to know what they are in the, the places that we work and we start to see like, hey, my colleagues paid more than I am, but I've worked here longer. Those are some some tools that can help us close the wage gap uh, as well. That totally makes sense to me because how can you know that your rights are being violated if you're kept in ignorance and you're kept in the dark, right? It, absolutely. So that information is is power and is important. I also find that there's implications for that, and maybe this is getting beyond the scope of our discussion around labor in general and unionizing, where in general, people, people, the workers are not given a lot of information that they would need to organize, and there is resistance against labor organizing. Yes. <laughs> yes to both, there is resistance, and yes, that um, it might be a little beyond the scope of uh, of the information that that I have, but we we do tend to see that people that are in unionized jobs are paid better. Unions tend to put a greater value on labor and the labor force. 
Uh, do unions help with pay transparency at all or these kinds of things? Or that's a different, uh, they have different priorities? I'm not, yeah, I'm not sure in New Brunswick what each kind of union does around that for, for pay transparency or pay scales. It's definitely a big complex issue, hey? Yeah. So like for the Coalition for Pay Equity, is pay transparency the chief policy you guys are fighting for to see in the province? Or are there other things you guys want to see put put forward to help with this issue? Yeah, so pay transparency is one big thing we're working on. But as our title has pay equity in it, another big issue we're working on is just pay equity legislation. So right mm-hmm. now, New Brunswick has pay equity legislation for the public sector. So that means that uh, most uh, most areas of the public sector have a requirement to do uh, pay equity job evaluations, um, and that uh, um, yeah, and that pay equity should be uh, achieved in in these different uh, public sector roles. We also have I I think it was. Was it last year or the year before? Very recently, a law came into effect federally. So meaning any federal, uh, anything that's federally legislated. Uh, so telecom, mm-hmm. aviation, um, and, and federal jobs. Uh, there's a Pay Equity Act now that covers those two. Uh, but in New Brunswick, we don't have pay equity to protect anyone working in the private sector, which is where most people work uh, in New Brunswick. So most people don't have legislation right now that protects their right to pay equity. Yeah. So that's a big thing that we're, we're working on is we'd like to see the law for the public sector extended to the private sector. And then we have like a couple uh, particular uh, sectors in general that we've been working more closely on. So even though municipalities, for example, are part of the public sector, they weren't included in the Pay Equity Act. Right now we're working on some research to kind of figure out what municipalities already know about pay equity and kind of what the appetite is for for moving in that direction and what kind of tools municipalities might need to, to move in that direction. Um, we've also been working on uh, the care sector and uh, for child care workers as well. So you might have seen a while ago, we had an agreement with the federal government to really reduce costs for daycare and and things like that. So we want to make sure that as these new agreements are being established between provinces, that uh, fair, that pay equity is something that is included in these agreements and that workers are paid, that childcare workers are paid fairly for their work. And then looking at the care sector, we're looking at things like home support workers or people that are working, uh, workers that are helping folks with uh, disabilities, people that are working in transition houses, for example. So we've done some pay equity exercises and we've seen that in some cases, in some of these care jobs, the difference between the wage that they're paid now and the wage that they should be paid if if pay equity were in place uh, can be, uh, in some cases, it's around $10 an hour. It can be absolutely astounding just how underpaid some of these jobs are. It's been a recurring theme, I think, in other episodes where we talk about the people who have been 
um, you know, helping the most vulnerable in our community themselves being made very vulnerable by the fact that their work can, which requires a lot of education and a lot of experience and often can be dangerous and, um, and long hours and require a lot of expertise and can, to be wearing many different hats. Um, you end up with a, with a pay level that leaves you very vulnerable to poverty yourself. Absolutely. So we've seen for some of these care jobs, for example, we've had employees share with us that they've worked in their sector for 20 years, but they still have two roommates because they can't afford to live by themselves. Or um, people that, uh, like I talked to someone in a transition house who works in a transition house and is helping women flee violence, but at the same time, they have to go to the food bank because they can't, they're not paid enough to afford, um, yeah, to, to afford groceries. No, it's absolutely astounding. And it, and it, and when we talk about like in some of these care professions that you see a high burnout rate, I get very frustrated with that framing because systematically you're left in such a vulnerable position for such, such a long time that you're doing very taxing, difficult work that is kind of disrespectfully undervalued. It, it It's an unsustainable situation. That's not an individual losing their flame. You know, it's not burning out to me. That's, that's being, that's being snuffed out. Absolutely. And then on top of that, cause we have the people that, you know, really care about these jobs that have or really care about the work that they're doing, the value that that provides back to the community that are staying in these jobs that they themselves are are struggling financially and and with their own health and and mentally. Um, but it also has a really big impact on retention and recruitment in those areas as well. Because you know, if I'm someone that's uh, you know looking at changing careers, or if I'm younger and and looking at um, at entering the workforce and seeing what's out there. Am I necessarily going to go through all the steps when I'm hearing from people that are working in these fields already, how burnt out they are and how unsustainable it is, or am I going to seek out maybe employment opportunities that, uh, where I am being paid fairly. And I, I know that I'm going to be able to afford my own basic needs like rent and food and, and things like that. So yeah. And especially thinking about things like a lot of these care jobs we're talking about and thinking about teachers, for examples, requires a master's degree. Education is getting more expensive, right? If you're not being paid for the value of the, the amount you invested in yourself to get two degrees and, and ongoing training uh, to be doing this important work, you know, it's, is it a realistic choice, right? Absolutely. Yeah. So those are all things that we're balancing in our workforce in general is, um, uh, yeah, we have a lot of folks that are kind of pushed into these, um, pushed into our un- undervalued, uh, hmm, how do I say this? Yeah, just people that are being undervalued for for the work that they're doing. No, absolutely. I mean, no one should have to be um, have to choose between their career and like 
you know, their family and whether they're going to be able to pay all their bills and have, give their kids the kind of good support for their own education or things like that, right? Like those, those aren't fair things to ask of, uh, of people, never mind of like one gender systematically. <laughs> yeah. And it's also like uh, all of these jobs and we've, you know, we saw it really highlighted over the pandemic in particular, but, uh, you know, whether there's a pandemic or not, these jobs are essential jobs for our community. This kind of work is really essential for our community. So to see that these jobs in particular are are being undervalued in that way is is really disheartening as well. I know. I know being glib isn't always helpful to conversations about constructive change, but for me, I find being glib is such a big part of like my coping mechanism. And I do find myself thinking like, oh, good, you're essential when we're going to put you in a dangerous situation, but you're not essential when you need a pay raise. Yep. (laughs) Yep. Like, like, I don't think that attitude is necessarily the most constructive attitude in the whole wide world, but it's, it's hard not to think that way sometimes when you dig into this issue, right? Absolutely. Absolutely. And I think like, I, I think one of the things that can help me when I kind of get into those like doom spirals is thinking about like, what are tangible things that I can do to... Uh, to help make a difference, to kind of help build these communities that that we want to have and we want to live in. So I'd say like one thing, uh, you know, one thing that that anyone can do is is uh, contact your local representative, contact your MLA, your member of the legislative assembly. Like they're the ones that are. Uh, you know, they're the ones that make the budgets for these uh, for these areas of the public sector. They're the ones that are making different legislation and their job is to represent us. So the, the best way we can make sure that they're representing us is to make sure that we're communicating with them. You don't need to send big, long emails essays for for emails to to your local representative it it can be really really simple couple of sentences just to say like this is something i care about you know i want i want pay equity i want people in care pay care care work to be paid more um you know it, it can be really simple statements and and things it, it doesn't need to be like a a four page research paper on on the value of, of women's work. I have so many thoughts about what you've just said, all of them agreeing with you. So the first <laughs> one, the, <laughs> the, the first one is that um, I, a good friend of mine from high school, she ended up getting opportunities to intern with the federal government. And she told me a story that really stuck with me where um, the, the MP that she was personally working for was one who, like if we sat down at dinner, we'd, we'd agree about most things. You know what I mean? This was a person who was politically in line with like kind of what me and my friends wanted to see for our communities. And she said something that was very powerful for this person was to have these written documents because it also becomes like something you can present to your colleagues to get leverage with them to say no people do care about this this should be a priority look at like and they would read out these letters right in parliament it's more useful than we realize 
Um, maybe because we're not like paying enough attention to our own political processes. And the other thought I had about it was around sort of, and maybe let me know if you disagree with this. Um, but I feel like after the financial crisis of 2008, which like I came to be right when I graduated from university, um, a lot of people in my age group, the millennial age group got just very disillusioned and eye rolly and checked out, um, from the, from politics and the process at that point. And it's kind of become a self-fulfilling prophecy. Interesting. I would, like, I would have been, uh, I would also be a millennial. I'd be a little bit younger. So I was leaving high school around 2008. And I would say the opposite happened for me. <laughs> I think around that financial crisis. And I'm actually an elder millennial. So we've had a different experience. <laughs> Uh, what, what is it you're supposed to say to elder millennials? Uh, peaches in a oh. can? Is that it? <laughs> <laughs> and we all deserve to hear it. Anyway, sorry, you were saying about your... Uh, oh, God. Um, uh, um, yeah, I, w- I was going to say, for me, I found the opposite kind of thing happened around that that 2008 financial crisis. And I, I don't know if for me, that was kind of entering university and leaving high school and starting to meet different people. And uh, that's really where I started to get more politically engaged and just learning more about, uh, you know, I, I found in high school, there's really a, I found I, I didn't have a lot of education around our political system or politics in general. I had no idea how things worked. When I thought of politics, I was like, it's really just like a bunch of old men in suits. Um, I don't, <laughs> I don't see how I relate to that or how they relate to me. Um, and uh, just kind of, yeah, being in a in a new environment and learning more about how uh, how our government is connected to so many things that impact my daily life. I found that really valuable. And I guess just kind of starting to connect with different people and organizations and things that um, that could kind of help equip me with, you know, tools that, uh, you know, that can make a difference. Like, you know, even just attending my first like march, uh, you know, that in itself is a, you know, it's a political act. It's a, you know, it's a demonstration and it, you know, it gets us outside of these kind of emails and things where we physically see how many people are showing up and taking time out of their day to say like, hey, we can do better. You need to do better. A hundred percent. You know, I feel like uh, um, in my day to day, I have tons of conversations with people who want to see good for the community. And maybe there's like a, a slight variation in knowledge base or or opinions or whatever. But like th- at the end of the day, people want to see th- things to be fair. People want to see, um, you know, people to be able to get the care they need, you know, you know, stuff like that. Um, and those are the conversations I have. But the same theme always comes up of like, I don't know what to do. I don't know what to do about it. I don't like, like you feel siloed. You feel isolated, right? Absolutely. Yeah. Um, I would say like, just keep talking about it. Absolutely. Like I know like for me, the huge difference that when I had a bit more of my political awakening and when I wanted, I was more determined to get involved was after I went back to school in 2012 and I took a social work degree at the University of Victoria. And I started learning 
all these aspects about our history in Canada. And I was just pissed the whole two years because I just thought this was stuff that should be in the high school curriculum. Like this was stuff I needed to know to be a good Canadian citizen. (laughs) I needed to know what happened in here in the last 100 years. (laughs) Absolutely. As a fun side point, I also went to University of Victoria. Uh, lovely lovely also did you see the rabbits (laughs) i yes i i have sat on many a rabbit dropping (laughs) uh for for the the listeners who don't know um the university of victoria there was um an incident or something where a bunch of students like broke into a lab and released a bunch of rabbits that were there to be tested on and rabbits the rabbits did what rabbits do and it just got very exponential (laughs) and the campus was known for having tons of just rabbits that lived there is that how the rabbits got there yes that's the origin story of the ubic rabbits i never heard the origin story that's really interesting um (laughs) yeah they're always just sorry i interrupted you you were at uh you were at uvic and uh yeah i i was gonna say that's also where i very similarly learned a lot about um indigenous studies that were not part of a high school curriculum that are extremely valuable to um yeah just to understanding like our our context of like you know why we're here in these systems that are happening and you know the the genocide that that took place here and um you know the ongoing inequalities that um that exist that are are um impacting indigenous communities that's just it right and you know it's like you and it's like we talked earlier in the conversation like as much as like um you know women who are white have certain disadvantages in the system you know there's there's it's more complex than just the gender piece right someone who is a woman will experience the sexism women experience but they also have the um the attitudes towards other aspects of their identity and also like the 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 history that that contributes to the current situation you're you're in right now right like and uh, there's so so much i can take for granted that not everyone can take for granted in our country, you know? And, you know, it's just something I'd love to dig into more is like that, why is it that an Indigenous woman is only being paid 55 cents on the dollar when I can at least count on my 70 cents? <laughs> yeah, yeah, absolutely. Like, uh, you know, not only have we undervalued jobs based on gender, but that also happens based on, you know, race, disability, age, um, you know, all these different intersections of our identities play into that. So we have existing systems of uh, of colonialism, of capitalism, of, you know, patriarchal systems that we live under, um, and all of these things kind of come to head. So we'll see how all of these different pressures can impact uh, uh, can impact us economically. Exactly, because it has actual physical realistic impact. Because at the end of the day, if your income is systematically lower, you are more vulnerable. You're more vulnerable to be homeless. You're more vulnerable to, to be unsafe. It, it can really come down to brass tacks in that way. And again, that was part of why I just felt so frustrated that I was kept ignorant of a lot of the history of Canada because I think sometimes, especially for me in my in my early 20s, when I was doing my first degree, 
Um, and I, I, I've talked about this on previous episodes where I went through a, um, a somewhat embarrassing now anarcho-capitalist anti-theist phase <laughs> um, <laughs> where I was just like abolish all the government, corporations should run everything, like fairy that, which bless 19-year-old Anna's heart, she was doing her best. <laughs> and... Um, And, you know, those are conclusions that I came to based on a certain understanding of what the reality was, what the country was that I lived in. Um, And I would have come to, and I came to different conclusions when I had different information. Mm, Yes. And I think sometimes when we have these conversations, one word needs to do a lot of heavy lifting, you know, like capitalism, patriarchal, equity, like we we put these words out there and these words have a, a lot of weight of history behind them. But if you don't know that history, it can end up feeling maybe alienating because there's, well, how do you, like, how do you get a grasp of what we're talking about without the context? Absolutely. And like a lot of these are not, you know, these are very, they're very big systems we're talking about. They're not going to be understood in like, you know, a one sentence definition isn't really going to give the full grasp and, and weight behind what those things mean. Exactly. Even in the course of this conversation, you know, we've talked about like how, um, you know, we can really get into the nitty gritty of how these things are measured. We can like, um, uh, you know, there's going to be a lot of different micro conversations within this larger macro conversation of pay equity there's the micro conversation of the of the public sector and then even more micro in terms of the municipalities you know it's when we say it's a complex issue it's because there's a lot of um there's a lot of points of complexity and a lot of different individuals in who are impacted by that conversation right absolutely and like it's important i think to understand too that well, pay equity is one solution um, or one one positive thing that we can work towards. Um, you know, it's not uh, it's not going to end everything. Like it, it's not going to be like, uh, you know, we have all of these different things that we're working on concurrently at the same time that are going to affect positive change. So pay equity is one way that we can uh, affect positive change by even um, by kind of evening out the playing field economically between um, uh, in terms of gender. But, uh, you know, there's still a lot, you know, there's other things that we can do that are maybe going to impact more um that are going to impact more colonial systems and, and things like that. So, you know, pay equity is, is one positive thing because as people have fairer economic outcomes, um, you know, under this system that we're living in, uh, you know, that does provide housing safety, uh, you know, it puts food on our table and things like that. But, um, you know, there's a lot of different organizations and people that are, and, activists that are are fighting for um for different kinds of of legislation and and positive change as well yeah absolutely and i think 
part of that fight as well is just the idea that um, acknowledging that there there is a women's issue that exists and it should be a priority. Even that in and of itself can feel like an uphill battle as a conversation, just to say this thing does in fact exist and it is important. Absolutely. And like, I remember before moving to Moncton, I lived in Vancouver and... Um, I'm from Vancouver. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So I would have lived in like, uh, I lived in a communal house. So what we did was we paid rent plus... I think it was $200 a month. And then we'd like collectively, like we'd take money out of that jar and like buy groceries and we'd all like share whatever was in the fridge. Like no one would label anything. Um, Mm. And uh, we lived with like five people and we had someone like renting out the garage who like lived in their van. Like it was a very, uh, say it was very Vancouver of of trying to make- That is maximum Vancouver. (laughs) Oh my goodness. Right. Like- trying to make these ends meet in a city that is impossibly difficult to live in because rent is so high and just like all the little ways that we find to like get by to try and reduce these pressures. And I, at the time, uh, that was uh, about the time that I was also trying to get this like petition signed um, to get uh, our leaders to agree to a, a debate around issues affecting women and girls. And one of my roommates at the time asked, like, well, why would you be working on that? Like, isn't, like, women's equality worse in other places? Like, why do you need to work on it more here? And I remember, like, listening to that and being like, so you're recognizing that women's equality isn't, still has a ways to go here, but because it's worse, maybe somewhere else where I don't have the the context or knowledge to deal with, I should be maybe working on on something else instead of, uh, you know, instead of change within, you know, within my community with with the relationships that I have. I found that like a really uh I found that like a surprising, I guess, kind of thing for for someone I was living with to, to bring up. Yeah, it's it's such a darn starter. And I think what hits me, like what hits home for me with that story is seeing myself in that roommate, right? You know, it's that's definitely something I think I have said to people. And I think because of my history with that kind of thinking, I, I have a stronger reaction to it now that I'm older and I think differently. Um, because I've always been someone who, who likes to think about things, who likes to ask questions. I love the nitty gritty. Like I'm, I'm here for that all the time. (laughs) Um, but what I've come to realize now is that instead of asking other people why they aren't doing things differently, it's asking myself, well, if I think it should be different, if I think it should be done differently, what am I doing? You know, it's, I, I really am embarrassed that I used to think in this like delegation way where like my job was to like sit in an armchair as like a 19 year old university student and like think out what the solutions were and then like tell other people to do it. It, It's embarrassing now (laughs) that attitude that I had. You know, I guess that's a point too of like, you know, it's, it's never too late. Like I, if I look back at like 19 year old me, I'd be very, uh, you know, very embarrassed um I don't know if like 19 year old me and like the me of my 30s 
uh, would really get along. Like, I don't know if we'd be able to have a conversation with each other. <laughs> oh, my God. Maximum relatable. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's really interesting just how much I have learned between then and now. Um, I was talking to a friend uh, a while ago on my kind of zigzaggy adventure to get to Moncton. Um, I ended up in Montreal for a couple of months and I was staying on a friend's couch. I don't know how this came up, but I had asked my friend if they'd ever like want to be like 24 again. And he responded with, you couldn't pay me to be my 24 year old self again. Like... There is no way I would be like, I would go back to being 24. Like I was not, uh, you know, he said like, I was just not a good person at 24. Like I've learned so much more about myself and the world and I'm better because of it that like, I don't need to relive that time. Like the world doesn't need. There's not enough money in the world. Yeah. Like the world doesn't need another me at 24. Like I'm, uh, you know, I, the, the self that I've become now in my, you know, in my later 20s is, uh, you know, this, this is what I want to present to the world. And I'm very comfortable with where I am. And I found that really interesting because I had never really thought about that before of like, I think we were talking about like reliving high school days and how we see a lot of, you know, how we'd been seeing a lot of friends and stuff. Uh, yeah, reliving how, you know, how amazing being, uh, being a teenager, being in your early 20s was. And he was like, no, nah, that's that's fake news. <laughs> that is fake news. Definitely. Like th- that, I, I really like see that in my own story. But I think where I start to take a step back and part of what drives me to like show up here and to have these kinds of conversations is like, I am very well aware that the resources I had that helped turn me into the person I like better today is not accessible to everyone. And I find that unacceptable. I think every, like not every, we're not, we're not all going to agree. We're not all going to look at the same facts and come to the same conclusions. That's life. But to not have access to the, to good information, it's unacceptable. Absolutely. Like, um, I, I think to, to echo what you said before too, like it's wild how many things I had to pay thousands of dollars for to learn in a, at a university that really yes. should have been taught in in high school or should have been made more accessible like and- i re- i remember uh i think uh the curriculum at uvic i found there's a lot more indigenous education that's been kind of woven into into the school system and like i remember uh learning more about like residential schools and things like that, that we had never really talked about in high school. Um, If we did talk about anything that was like negative that, um, that, you know, colonizers would have done towards indigenous populations. It was all like, Oh, that was like super long time ago. Like it's all fixed now. Like we all good. Um, And I remember like, assuming it was come up at all. I don't think it even came up at all in my time in in public school right yeah and like I remember like uh you know I had called my parents and relatives after learning more and like called them out on a bunch of racist things that I have heard them say over the years where I like you know at 
15, I maybe didn't have the context to like correct them or, or feel part of that conversation. But then, you know, having that information (laughs) being like, wait a minute, like we know this isn't acceptable. And I, you know, I won't allow this to, to continue to be perpetuated in our, you know, in our family or our circles. So yeah, just that, that access to education can make a super big, super, super big difference. Exactly. Right. Um, and you know, I even think coming, bringing it back to a bit of like kind of where we're at with pay equity, learning about the history of how our social systems developed, learning about the history of kind of like women in the workforce and how a lot of care roles were done on a volunteer basis back when women quote unquote couldn't work. And the impact of that history has a legacy today, right? Absolutely. You know, like there was a time when social work was the hobby horse of wealthy women. Oh my goodness. You know, and like, I guess something's better than nothing, but that's not what we want for ourselves now. And that history still has an impact, right? On how the profession's perceived. Absolutely. And I, I guess too, like, um, you know, if I think about that, I, I would think that if if social work was kind of developed as a hobby for wealthy women, that's, you know, that's going to be typically wealthy white women. And then, you know, yep. we look at like, if we're talking about, um, if we're talking about like the genocide that, you know, that we've committed against Indigenous people in Canada, we can look at like how systems that we have today are continuing to affect people based on like race and gender. And I know one thing that's come up is, uh, is in that kind of field of social work of how, um, uh, how we still see, how we're seeing that, um, indigenous families in particular are more likely to have their children taken away from them, um, than than white families for example well and here's like the the dark thread with that right is like the main reason why um indigenous children or a lot of children are taken out of their homes is because of quote-unquote neglect right that's the main reason given um, but the neglect is is not us- is not often or not always measured by like emotional neglect or by just ignoring them. It's it's poverty, right? It's poverty. Yeah. The parents can't afford to bring them like their needs, right? So then the system steps in. But as we just discussed, the the work of Indigenous women is systematically undervalued. It's you know, it's, it's hair, it's, it's bag, it's boggling. It boggles my mind. Yeah. Yeah. So it, it just relates back to like, you know, these systems that we've created where we've undervalued, not just the work that people do, but the person themselves. And then we create these really unrealistic expectations out of that. Yeah. And I think to, to know where we want to go, we have to know where we've been and how we ended up here. Absolutely. Krista, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. I really enjoyed talking with you. I think this was a really important conversation and I appreciate you taking the time. Thank you. Well and Fair is brought to you by La Station Workspace, working in partnership with O Strategies. La Station is a co-working space that brings people together in Moncton, New Brunswick for community and collaboration. Well and Fair is hosted by me, Anna Larad, and produced by Elevate Studios. 
This podcast has been brought to you in part by O Strategies as a part of their 18-month Solutions Lab on Housing in Greater Moncton, funded by the CMHC under their National Housing Strategy. Whether you are looking to clarify your strategy, enable innovation, or foster leadership, O Strategies uses simple tools and structures to help organizations and communities achieve better outcomes and deliver best possible outcomes via a human-centered lens. Committed to achieving concrete, sustainable, and inclusive results, O Strategies will help you build your team's capacity so that you can feel confident facing whatever the world throws your way. If you're in need of a helping hand in this ever-changing environment, O Strategies can help. Get started online today at ostrategies.ca or find them on Instagram, Facebook, and LinkedIn.